Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. We're told to be careful. Evil company corrupts good morals or good manners. We have to be careful who we touch, but we do need to be careful that we don't get in, our, in a place where we're unwilling to touch. Why? That can happen. That's what the Pharisees were like. See, we're going to see the religious leader's response to all Jesus is doing. And the irony is they couldn't have healed this guy if they wanted to, and they wouldn't have touched him if they could have. Today we have part one of a two-part message from Pastor Sam entitled, Who Needs Jesus? We will be taking up in verse 12 of Luke chapter 5, and we'll be considering several key events, the healing of a leper, a paralytic, and the calling of Matthew the tax collector, among others. So let's listen in. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're looking at verses 12 through 39, title of our study this morning, Who needs Jesus. This section of Luke's gospel begins to so, show us a series of snapshots. We'll see one followed by another and another by another. We're going to see a hopeless case followed by a helpless case. And then there's a problem with some haughtiness and, and hatred. And well, we are going to get to see that Jesus has a heart for the hopeless, for the helpless, for the hated for the haughty. The bottom line is we ask the question, who needs Jesus is, well, everyone who knows they do and everyone who doesn't know they do. We all need Jesus. Basically four scenes in this portion of Luke. There's a leper cleansed. There's a paralytic forgiven and healed. There's a tax collector called and a problem revealed. We begin in verse 12 and it happened when he was in a certain city, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and he fell on his face, implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Dr. Luke here describes this man as being full of leprosy. Leprosy, by the way, were you to go to the doctor and you got a diagnosis and he said leprosy? Well, it was the most devastating possible diagnosis because the prognosis was, well, entirely devastating as well. Leprosy would defile you spiritually. It would deform you physically. It would isolate you socially. In every part of your life, there would be devastation. So if you went and the doctor said, man, it's, it's leprosy, you would leave that place depressed and hopeless. And that's this guy's situation. Well, 
you may already be aware, the reason that these lepers were deformed physically is because, well, leprosy like sin. It, it, it begins on the inside and works its way to the outside. It begins imperceivably and then it manifests itself so radically and dramatically. A leper loses the ability to feel in his extremity. So, so what happens is once you lose your sense of feeling and touch, well, he, a leper could put his hand into the fire. He wouldn't even know he was burning himself until he smelled the searing flesh. By then, it's too late to stop the burning. And they didn't have the medical technology we have today. And so infection more often than not would set in. And, and you'll see pictures of people with leprosy and they, they have nubs for fingers and their, their noses are worn off and, and other portions of them just totally disfigured. That was bad physically. Socially, well, you were an outcast. You, you really didn't have fellowship with anyone except another leper. But that wasn't the worst of it. And according to this guy's request, we see he got the worst of it was what it did to you spiritually. You were defiled. It means rendered unfit for fellowship or worship or service. When a, when a leper would walk down the street, and by the way, he would be breaking the law to walk down the street. You weren't even supposed to come into town if you were a leper. But if you did and you saw someone coming down the street, you would have to cover your face and cry out, unclean, unclean. And so a leper's state, a leper's situation could not be more devastating. The only hope a leper had of ever finding relief from all of this would be death or the impossible, a miraculous cure. Some had heard in the Old Testament that, that God did such things and, and somehow this leper had come to the conclusion that Jesus could cleanse him of his leprosy. Take note of this. The approach itself was a criminal offense, although I doubt there was any fear of prosecution or arrest. I mean, you'd have to touch the leper to arrest him and no one's going to do it. So it's like, OK, get out of town. And so what does he do? He comes and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and he begins to plead with Jesus. He just says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. It's always the question. We know God can do anything. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. What we don't know is he willing to do it. And so here's a guy who has absolute faith in Jesus' ability his only question has to do with Jesus' willingness, his, his compassion. Will he touch him and heal him? Well, Jesus in response does the unthinkable and followed by the impossible. His initial response was to reach out and touch him. Again, no one would touch a leper. And, and I have a lot of friends in the medical field and they say, well, leprosy today, we call it Hansen's disease. It's not contagious. I understand that. But in the first century, there was either a formal leprosy that was contagious or all of them believed that it was contagious. Either way, if you were a leper, no one but another leper would ever touch you. And so for Jesus to reach out and touch him, this was unthinkable. The idea among the religious establishment and they're looking on was, well, if, if you touch someone who's defiled, you become defiled. 
And we understand this, a practical illustration of it. You have a, a bucket of water and it's, and it's just like filled with disease and death. You know you're not going to drink from that. You have a bucket of water and it's clean. You're going to drink. And if you would start running out of water, you never think, well, let's mix the two because you know that you're not going to purify that by, by touching it. No, no, or by mixing it. And, and so the idea is, well, we're told to be careful. Evil company corrupts good morals or good manners. We have to be careful who we touch, but we do need to be careful that we don't get in, our, in a place where we're unwilling to touch. Why? That can happen. That's what the Pharisees were like. See, we're going to see the religious leaders' response to all Jesus is doing. And the irony is they couldn't have healed this guy if they wanted to, and they wouldn't have touched him if they could have. But Jesus does the unthinkable. He touches him and he didn't have to touch him to heal him because he heals him with a word. He had the power to heal, but he had the compassion that caused him to touch. So he reaches out, he touches him, and then immediately he speaks the word, I am willing, be cleansed. And take note, he doesn't ask for, for um, uh, healing, he asks for cleansing. Why? Because his greatest issue was, was the spiritual alienation, not the social and not the physical, but the, the, the reality that he couldn't be a part of the synagogue, that he couldn't be a part of the temple, that he couldn't come to the feast and participate in the festivals. He asked for cleansing and Jesus cleanses him. The, the picture here then is there is hope for the hopeless. And there are many hopeless cases in the world today. Maybe you're one of those. Maybe you've been going through something and no one knows it because you just don't share it. You know how this happens. There are those of us, that, the married ones, we, we can have a little bit of a hard time sometimes getting to church. Pam and I solved this years ago. We take two cars and uh, don't want to risk it. But, uh, but, you know, if you're that couple and you're like, rah, 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 not that that was us. No, but just in case, you know, if you're going at it and then, you know, you get out of the car and you walk up to the front door and the, the ushers, there greeting you and you're like, how's it going? Oh, we're fine. You know, <laughs> we're not all fine. Some of us are a mess. Let's be honest. And some of us feel hopeless. We just do. And Jesus specializes in hopeless cases. He is the great physician. There's nothing too hard for him. So he does the unthinkable. He does the impossible. This guy leaves this place cleansed, whole, right. Well, he charges him to tell no one, verse 14, but go and show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. There are two things. One, the law in Leviticus, Leviticus 14, made provision for the cure of an incurable disease. I just love that. It's like God set it up. He says, I know you know this is impossible, but just so you know that I will not only, you know, be capable, but, but willing, and, and I'll do the impossible. He makes provision. And then he says, as a testimony to them, he wanted the religious leaders, the priests to know that, that God was working again in their midst. 400 years of silence during that time, no record of any miracle. And now John's on the scene and Jesus is on the scene and things are happening. Well, the report, though, went around concerning him all the more. There's no way to keep this quiet. Great multitudes came together to hear to be healed of their infirmities. And he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Well, our second snapshot 
begins in verse 17. It was a certain day we read and he was teaching and there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Galilee, by the way, northern Israel says that they were coming from all the towns of Galilee. They build the towns around the lake and this makes sense to us. It's a very dry desert region and so you want to be near the water and so uh, near the coast, lots and lots of people like Australia today. You know, you go there all around the coast, there's just all these people. You go inland, there's nobody. And so they would build around the coastal region or they would build around the lakes. So there were little cities scattered around and they were all coming to Capernaum where Jesus had established his base. And he's ministering there. But not just that, from Judea, from southern uh, Israel, they were traveling up and, and we're talking about religious leaders from all over. They're hearing what Jesus is doing. They're gathering together to hear and see and figure him out if they can. Well, we go on to read in verse 18. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop to let him down with his bed through the tilling in the midst before Jesus. Now, there's two pictures here. The first we've got to get. That is a picture of compassion in action. We're going to read in a minute. Jesus seeing their faith. And you can always see faith because faith is always See, by faith, Hebrews 11 will say again and again, by faith, this guy waited and this guy went and this guy worked and this guy worshiped. But there was always a demonstration connected to faith. And so, well, these guys were putting their faith into practice. They believed Jesus could and would heal this guy. They don't question if he's willing. They only question, well, how can we get him there? The house is packed. You have to get this picture. There's no way to get in. The, the streets outside are packed. You can't hardly get near the house. So it's going to take at least four guys to carry this guy to the house. And then it's going to take even more of them to get him up on the roof because that's their plan. They're like, okay, we'll just go up and we'll take the roof apart and then we'll just lower him down. Now, I don't know who thought of it. It wouldn't work here in America because of all the building codes. But but there in Israel in those days, like Belize today and and, uh, you know, Juarez or lots of places, the building codes are very lax. And so they build these structures that are very solid as far as the walls and floor. But then the roofs, they're just kind of patched together and some of them would be more solid. You could go and spend time on them. This was a roof you could get up on, but you could also take apart. And you got to picture yourself inside the house. Jesus is teaching. And all of a sudden you, you hear some noise up on the roof. But you avoid the distraction and you focus on him. Then dust starts to fall down, you know, trickle down and, and land all around. And, and you look up and all of a sudden you see light. The roof is opened up and they let this guy down. We're told right in the midst, right in front of Jesus, right in the middle of the teaching. I have to admit that would be a distraction if that were to happen right here and now. I'd be like, okay, what's this about? But, but here's what happens. Their willingness to work together, their desire to see their friend healed, it, it is a picture of, of help for the helpless. And, and see, 
the hopeless leper could get himself to Jesus. He just didn't know what Jesus would do for him. He knew what he could do, but he could get there. The helpless can't even get there. And I think sometimes what well, we start thinking, we got to get our unsaved friends. We got to get our unsaved relatives. We got to get those co-workers or schoolmates or roommates. We got to get them to church. And I'm all for that. I got to tell you, as a pastor, we like to see lots of people coming to study and worship. But it's far more important than you get them to Jesus than you get them to church. Because I've seen a lot of people come to church and, and reject Jesus, never really connect with him. The idea is pray for them, live the life before them, share with them and bear their burdens. That's what these guys are doing. And if you can get them to Jesus, hey, you won't have to worry about getting them to church. They'll be hungry for the word. They'll be desiring fellowship. All of that will follow. So the issue will always be getting them to Jesus. Well, they break through the roof. They lower him down into the midst. And when Jesus saw their faith, verse 20, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. I picture his friends while it doesn't say it. I can't help but think they're like, wait, wait, we're not here for that. We brought him for the healing thing, Lord. And, and I'm not saying they said it, but I can't help think it. Why does Jesus say your sins are forgiven? We're going to see there's probably more than one reason, but I believe it's, it's because primarily that this is his ultimate priority. You see, Jesus is always looking at eternity. Eternity, by the way, not just an extension of time. It's not just life that goes on and on and on, but, but it is life in a sense we can't even imagine it. And it's for the ages to the ages or the eons to the eons. It is the absence of time, not just an extension of time. I can't really comprehend it. But, but Jesus does. And so he sees this guy and he knows I could heal him physically and he'll be better off temporally. But, but if I touch him spiritually, he'll be better off eternally. Now he's able to do both and he's gonna. But he deals with the greatest need first because the greatest need impacts him eternally. And it's why, yes, we're to feed the hungry. Yes, we're to clothe the naked. Yes, we're to, to care for the poor. But, but if we don't share spiritually, we leave them headed to a Christless eternity. Well, as he says, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their first question actually blinds them to how close they were in that second one, you see. When they say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? They are assuming that what he's doing is wrong for him to do because only God, and they say it, they get it right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Let's, let's clear this part up. It's so important to see it. When I sin against a human being, being my wife or my kids or any of you, I've sinned really against at least two people in every instance. If I sin against you, I'm sinning against you and against God. And the sin against God is actually the greater sin. David understood this. So when he 
committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered in a vain attempt to cover that sin. Later, when he repents, he says against you and you only have I sinned. Was he saying it wasn't a sin to commit adultery or to commit murder? No, he wasn't saying that, but he's saying, I understand, Lord, the real sin is against you. Even the murder of a man is killing a man made in the image of God and for the purposes of God. So he realizes that, yes, I sinned here, but this is the greater sin. And so because of that, only God can forgive sin. Now, we are authorized, encouraged to tell people when they confess their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse of all unrighteousness. When, when they repent of sin, God will forgive them. But it's God doing the forgiving. It's God doing the cleansing. We're simply declaring God says he will and you can trust him to do it. He's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse of all unrighteousness. So when they say, who can forgive sins? But God alone, they were so close to getting it. Yeah, only God could say this. See, he didn't say your sins can be forgiven or God will forgive you. He says your sins are forgiven. And by saying it, remember, Jesus isn't the lawyer, but some of them are. And he's not parsing words. He's very careful in, in what he's saying. And they understand it. When he says your sins are forgiven you, he is in saying that, putting himself in the place that only God can be in. And the answer is, well, either their first question or their second. Who, who's this who speaks blasphemies? Well, this is Jesus and this isn't blasphemy because he is God and that's why he can forgive sin and he alone can forgive sin. Well, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, and I've shared with you in the past, this used to bother me when I was a young Christian, realized he can read my mind. Well, I found that there's no way to turn it off. I can't stop thinking. And, and so, I, you know, he knows, he, he, he understands what's going on inside of me. He, he knows the worst and the best about me. But he read their thoughts and he answers and says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise up? and walk. This is a no-brainer, by the way. It is way easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, remember, only God could say that and have it be true. Only God could actually forgive those sins and cleanse them and, and make the guy, again, right and righteous and acceptable. But he's asking the question, which is easier to say, not to do, but to say. And, and so it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see if anything actually happens. But to say, rise up, you know, take your bed and walk or, you know, hey, if nothing happens, everybody's going to know in just a second. Right. And so he's saying, look, it, I just want you to think it through. That's what he's doing with them. He is reasoning with them. You know, in the Old Testament, come, let us reason together. God's saying, be reasonable. Let me let me demonstrate it to you. So so what's easier? to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Again, here's his priority. He wants us to know. He wanted them to know. He wants everyone to know that he and he alone has power to forgive sins. And at this point, he's on earth. So he's saying power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. 
Now he gives them three impossible commands. Arise, well, you can't do that when you're paralyzed. Take up your bed, that's not gonna work either. Go to your house. But here's what I've learned about the commands of Christ. If he gives me three impossible things to do, all I need to do is the first one. The others are gonna take care of themselves. Once I've obeyed the first impossible command, what kind of impossible commands does he give me? He tells me to love my enemies. Have you tried that lately? I mean, it's, let's be honest. He says, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Hey, I find that difficult. I love Pam as much as I can, but, but he's talking about loving in such a way that it is sacrificial and unconditional where I always put her first. That's not my nature. I have to be walking in the spirit to do that. And, and the moment I'm in the flesh, I stop doing it and I misrepresent him, cause some trouble for myself. And, and so the, the idea is he gives us a lot of impossible commands, but, but we have to rely on his power in order to fulfill them. And here's the cool part, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the testimony of scripture. This guy hears Jesus say, arise. And he's like, all right, you say so, I'll do it. And he stands up and then he says, take your bed, and, and go to your house. It really would not be fair to compare these two situations as the situation that a leper found himself in was much, much worse. However, thinking about being unable to fellowship with other Christians, it certainly is something that many of us went through during the recent COVID pandemic. Now, whether we were isolated by force or by choice, we were separated from the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. I found isolation, even for short periods of time, prevents me from connecting with this body, and it prevents me from giving strength to it and drawing strength from it. Hebrews 10.25 warns us not to forsake assembling together, and I could not agree more. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.